This is Lothar Tuppen, and you're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Hello, strange world. Welcome to the Aldergate Papers. My name is Adrian Ward, and these singed and crumpled pages are my diary, a record of the final days of my former life. I remember almost nothing of the story they contain. All I know is that it ends with me very nearly being killed, and that it may not be entirely unrelated to some of the strange things that seem to be happening lately. If there's any truth in the odd fragments of memory that I just can't seem to shake, well, there are things you deserve to know. Things that may help you to understand what's going on, and what's coming. When we left our hero, he was just off to visit the spot where a significant portion of his estranged pal had been found a few days previously. Precisely who left Sammy Braden's legs in the last quad of Gambrel College, and what they may be planning to do next, remains a matter of some urgent concern. This is Day 3, Part 3. Setting the scene of the crime. It is the third day of the return to Aldergate. The time and place of writing is around eleven o'clock at night in the Arkwell Privy Library atop the manse of the Vice Chancellor. We begin. Well, now, this is nice, isn't it? Hmm, I suppose that rather depends on where you draw the lines. Snugged up here by the fire, clean and warm and three fingers deep in the dram. That's very nice. Very nice indeed. Baths, also. They're nice as well. Give Sir Reggie credit. He may have had some radical notions about office decor, but when it comes to bathrooms, the fellow's taste was impeccable. To think, you've been slumming it up in the little washroom downstairs. Serves you right for being naughty and never going properly to bed. There it was all the time, a proper salle de bain, tucked away off the master bedroom. It is magnificent. That great clawfoot tub had you ill at ease for a moment. Afraid you might be condemned to Victorian plumbing as well. However, aside from a bit of rattle and bang from the plug hole, it's clear that, in this quarter at least, your predecessor was not a man to tolerate any guff from the Society of Preservationists. He's left you shiny new fittings and a showerhead the size of a dinner plate. 
and the manse's boiler seems equal to providing all the hot water you can wallow in. And, into the bargain, you've inherited a princely portfolio of personal products. You know, for a chap who was as bald as a monk, Sir Reggie kept an astonishing assortment of tonics and potions and unguents and things. You've a lot of experimenting to do. Tonight you limited yourself to a splash of the old 4711 and a few dabs of something called Wheel de Laveau on the temples. You now smell like a field of freshly oiled wildflowers. And, whilst you're giving credit, a hearty round of applause to old Baz. At least somebody's making an effort to look after you, since you can't be bothered. You'd only gone looking for another wedge of bitter, but there it was on the kitchen table. Just the thoughtfulest little care package. An honest-to-goodness wicker basket, containing not one, not seven, but three of those little falafel wrap things from Kebabalon. Just like the old days. And, just like the old days, Baz forgot that you don't like that spicy pink yogurt stuff they put on everything. But no matter. Tucked in with the tasties was your new pal, Mr. Scotchbottle, who taketh away the sins of the world. Between the bath and the booze, all the travails of the afternoon have been washed from your brain as by the tears of happy angels. Of <sighs> course, now you've got to go and revisit it all. But that's all right. If necessary, you can always rinse and repeat. <laughs> ah. So, yes... The tale of this afternoon. You headed off to Gamble College just as dusk... No. Wait, hold up. You forgot about the sky. Can't forget the sky. It's the best thing you've seen all day. All right, yes, one quick step back. Uh, just before lunch, when you were leaving the Aldergate Playhouse. Oh... Yes, and you took one of those magic carpet things back up to the surface. Very clever. Perfectly smooth ride. Anyhow, as it bore you up towards the surface, you looked up and out. And as you approached the mouth of that stony burrow, you beheld the ivory sun in its purple sky. Can't believe you didn't see it before. But, of course, you were rushing to follow Baz into a fiery grave. Anyhow, you recognized it at once from that New Yorker article, the one Tom the Usurper stuck on your office door because, ha-ha, silly old Aldergate University. That article, yes, the window to the universe. That would have been eight months ago, thereabouts. So the thing's practically new. Talk about a feat of difference engineering and data management. Had you but whirled enough in time, you'd have dearly loved to have worked on it yourself. (laughs) 
What's best about that purple sky is that it's such an extravagant solution to what's really quite a stupid problem. This one you really can blame on the Society of Preservationists. They defined the terms of the challenge that the Vestergaard Center had to meet. How do you bury a high-tech theater complex underneath King's Common, then drop an animatronic art gallery on top of it, all without upsetting the tall king? Because it wasn't enough just to leave the bloody great rock in situ. You see, among his hobbies, the tall king is a sort of astronomical calendar. The sides of the monolith are all over grooves, and there's been tomes upon tomes written about how you can use them to read the celestial spheres. Sight along the proper channels at the vernal equinox when the moon is in the last house on the left, etc. With the Parata dynamic gallery looming overhead, his igneous majesty could no longer see the sky. So the old SOP sent up a distress flare calling for suggestions and proposals. You felt a touch of pride reading that it was a team from Elden House that cracked the case and got the job. Poor old Sir Abdul wouldn't have had much interest in that sort of thing, but he passed away last year. The new head is a woman called Lobanova, Baltic Bell of the High Energy Astronomy Ball. She was around in your day, too, apparently, a child prodigy, but she's been off heading up the development of the university's Nenets Imaging Array. The Samoyeds must have got sick of her and shipped her back to England, just in time to slip into Sir Abdul's loafers. When the preservationists ran up the flag, Lobanova appears to have saluted like Bilio, with a little help from the School of Difference Engineering and the Bucky Nanofab. They turn the gallery's underside into a single great LED panel that precisely reproduces the geometry of the cosmos above. Now, whatever the weather, the tall king has an unobstructed view of the glowing ivory disks of Sol and Luna and twelve thousand other celestial bodies, each in its proper place, and sailing on its own correct trajectory through the purple void. Ah, where were you? Yes, right. Out of the playhouse and into the streets. Baz buzzed off in the banana-mobile. Standish headed off to his appointment at Weatherby in the university's one and only panda car, a Vauxhall Astra with white and vermilion Battenberg. And you went to lunch. At the mercantile. Yes, yes, you've covered that. Jolly nice walk. The sun still shone bravely, but the throng of young heliotropes in University Place had thinned a bit. It is November, after all. Turning up Queen's Parade into the shadow of Kermantle was like stepping through a ghost. Still, all's relative, eh? You had just begun the delicate dance of slipping into the Chesterfield without breaking stride or setting down your satchel, when you noticed that there was a nude painting being done in the Occam Arcade. Nude painting cubed, in fact. A nude, painting a nude, painting a nude. That is to say, nude chap number one, painting baroque designs on the goosey flesh of nude chap number two, whilst nude lass captures the scene with easel and canvas. 
Hopefully they hit their daily artistic quota not long after you passed. By the time you left the mercantile, the day was definitely drawing in, and you regretted choosing the Makoto Waku. Fortunately, you hadn't far to go. That's the thing about Altergate. Nothing's terribly far from anything else. Unlike your Cambridges and Oxfordses, which have spread themselves thither and yon over the centuries, Aldergate has kept itself all more or less of a piece, and except for Weatherby and Midwinter Hill, it's all within the old city walls. It has to be, of course. The I-N-T-E ends where the borders were drawn back in 1381, when silly old Dick Lionheart got sulky and declared Aldergate beyond the rule and protection of the crown. To which the university, of course, said right-ho, slammed the gates, and got to work testing the practical applications of Chinese salt on the peasant mob that turned up hoping to loot the place. Not the last clash between town and gown, sadly, but hopefully you will never have to order the deployment of flying fire against civilians. Anyhow, the upshot is that in Aldergate, Everything is walking distance. Especially for a master of the secret ways such as yourself, eh, self-old self? A layman would never give Crick's passage a second glance, and even most altercations probably only know it as the little covered alley off Queen's Parade, wherein lurks the purple monkey dance hall. You, however, know the bin trick. At Alley's end, there's a covered tip that serves the merchants of Crick's Passage. Within this bin mingle the exotic refuse of masseurs and costumiers, vendors of violin strings and traders in latex evening wear, besides the empty bottles and soiled sawdust from the monkey. This bin hides a secret. It is never emptied because it is never filled. It's got a false back to it. Crick's passage terminates in the outer wall of Bridgehouse College, and Dr. Ito, the head of Bridgehouse, also happens to be the rector of the School of Waste Reclamation. One man's trash, etc. Hmm. This really is good scotch. It isn't, not at all. Mm, but it is. So, yes, for an unsqueamish and reasonably nimble pedestrian, Crick's Passage is the quickest way to the new bridge, and the new bridge is certainly the quickest way to Gambrel College, because while the university may be conveniently nuclear as the crow flies, the River Fay runs dark and cold and swift, and in its hurry to meet the lazy old river Alder, it splits poor Aldergate right down the middle. You can cross down at University Place, or you can trot all the way up to Faymarket Square, but otherwise the only options are these. Um, number one, swim. Not recommended. Although the university encourages the boldest sort of experimentation in the scientific and technical fields, Nevertheless, Drowning in the Fair retains the Student's Choice Award as the number one filler of untimely graves. Marlowe once wrote a song about swimming in the Fair. Uh, not sure of the tune. 
all the lyrics, really. More or less, it goes, um, Hey, nonny, nonny, don't swim in the fay. Hey, nonny, nonny, you'll drown. Words to that effect. Yes. Then, <clears throat> option number two. Jump. Once upon a time, three slabs of Cornish granite, lesser cousins to the tall king, no doubt, stood proudly along what's now the Guildford College backs. At some point over the last dozen centuries, the middle one toppled over, and now forms a sort of ledge jutting out over the river. Many a student, given a running start and a favorable tailwind, has touched down on the Occam side in a cloud of glory and inexpensive vodka. YouTube is crammed to bursting with rousing successes and ignominious failures, plus compilations of the lass who used to do it twice a week to visit a paramour at Salton House. You never tried it yourself, but people do it every year, especially during Wakefire. The Long Man Leap has made Weatherby a mecca for orthopedic surgeons. Oh, and finally, option number three. The New Bridge. New since the 1400s, that is. There's some sort of sorrowful legend associated with the old bridge that preceded it. Somebody jumped off, or fell off, or got thrown off. Whichever's saddest. Anyhow, there's no fear of that with the new bridge. The whole thing's completely enclosed. A picturesque loaf of gothic stone with plenty of those spiky decorative bits piled on top, and no windows whatsoever. You'd forgot how bloody dark it is inside, and that was before sunset. Anyhow, you'd a date with a chief constable. So, over the bridge and on. The Warden College bells announced three o'clock as you were trotting up the prickly sward that slopes up from the river to the deep red walls of Gambrel. Gambrel's one of the newer colleges, the 1840-something, too recent to have proper whispered legends of its own. Somebody tried to stir up a rumor that the clay for its terracotta brickwork was dredged from the Upper Nile, but you're pretty sure it's Welsh. Nevertheless, it's a fine-looking college, and all of a piece, not a chimera of cobbled-together centuries like Elden House or Queensmead, nor pompously regal like Kermantle. Gambrel is stately, dignified, its many-gabled roofs peering out on all sides. Distinctly British, but gleefully colonial, vibrant with new ideas snatched and absorbed. Then there's Triple E. Took you a moment to grok what you were seeing. The towers hadn't been finished when you left, and the final product... Well, the Gambrel College Center for the Engineering of Elementary Entities... Twin glass obelisks rising from what were originally two of Gambrel's three quadrangles. You remember the controversy at the time, and personally you expected that it would end up looking pretty foul. But, as a matter of fact... <laughs> ah, do get on with it, can't you? There is a murder waiting. Right. Standish was pacing about in the last quad when you got there. 
He's quite a tall man, this chief constable of yours, but he seems forgetful of the fact. A solid six-footer when walking, he collapses in on himself when he stands at ease. So far, his illness has only nibbled at the edges of his motor faculties. His hands are steady as rocks when he's using them, and his gait betrays only the slightest hint of herky-jerk. Thin as a rake and slope-shouldered, you'd put him somewhere in his thirties to forties, with most of those years piled up between his eyebrows. Slightly too well-groomed. Moustache and sideburns razor-sharp, cheeks immaculately shaved. Nails short and clean, shoes like mirrors. Favors a prat knot. <sighs> Bit unusual, that. And what's more unusual is that today's was fresh as a daisy. Easy to tell with an unpatterned black tie. The silk round the knot had an even sheen to it. That can't survive being tugged loose, tossed onto a chair, and retightened the next morning. Now, what do you make of a man who shaves, shines, and puts on a fresh uniform necktie to start his workday? These are tea leaves of the personality, and you're not sure you like their flavor. You'd best hope he doesn't turn out to be an overbearing stickler for by-the-book procedure, or the two of you will never get on. But, then again, no, he can't be, can he? Aldergate would have done him in already, and Sir Reggie would never have hired him in the first place. <sighs> hypothesis, and a melancholy little hypothesis it is. Do you suppose that even the tedious little chores of life take on a ritualistic significance when a chap is staring down his own sell-by date? The razor and soap, the polish and cloth, the elaborate dance with a silk tie. Perhaps he appreciates them in a way no man could who doesn't sense the approach of a day when his hands will refuse him even these little duties. Ah. Oh, a brilliant theory, Holmes. Far more likely than that he just tried to make himself look nice today because he had an appointment to meet the new vice-chancellor. Ass. Steady on now. Don't be too harsh. Nobody was born a detective. You're new to this sleuthing biz. You've got to start somewhere. Well, how about with the actual crime, then? Why not start there? Fine. Yes. The scene of the crime. <laughs> yes. Standish wasted no more of your time than he already had. After the hellos, and before you could ask after his health, he started you on a walking tour of Last Quad. Here's the spot where Sammy's legs were found, half in and half out of a black duffel bag, available from any shop, no distinguishing characteristics. The discovery was made at around 2 a.m. three days ago by members of Celluloid Jam Session on their way home from a shadow cast in UP. Nasty way to end an evening. Anyhow, 
C.C. Standish laid out the facts as presently known in a clipped, bullet-pointy sort of way, pointing here and pacing there and gesturing at the four arched entryways to last quad. It's a mystery and no mistake. There's ivy hanging in clusters on the walls of Gambrel College, but it is well-behaved ivy, carefully footed and mercilessly manicured. It does nothing to obscure the view from the windows of the residences, offices, and classrooms that lie in last quad. Looking up at the triple-E towers, you could see busy altergate at work, and if they weren't quite so busy, they could have looked down and seen you. So very many possible witnesses. All the time Standish was talking, you felt a keen awareness of just how public the spot is. Not everyone knows the bin trick, but everybody takes the new bridge cut through. So, besides the Gambrel students and staff, there's a pretty consistent flow of through traffic at all hours. How can nobody have seen anything? That's the real mystery, isn't it? Well, no, not even remotely. The real mystery, of course, is who done it followed at a respectful distance by How Done It, with Why Done It running a strong third. Still, there's no sense you're fretting over those too much, because you need clues to tackle that sort of poser, and you haven't got any. Nor have the police, really. Not that Standish seems to know about. Ah, yes, that is a point you're glad to have clarified. Obviously, this hasn't been a one-man investigation, but... Well, you didn't know the protocol. Fortunately, you've come aboard at a period of history when the university has a reasonably matey relationship with the civil authority. We handle our own drunken disorderlies and public indecencies, etc., but for proper crimes, the university has an informal understanding with the Aldershire CID. In this case, Standish has mostly played the role of liaison, keeping everybody calm and cooperative while the old-fashioned police get on with the old-fashioned police work. And so they have done, apparently. Standish says the county fuzz were prompt to handle the swabbing and photographing and canvassing and so forth. Most conscientious, he says they've been, and he made the grim but sound point that, well... Having jurisdiction over Quelling's Mumley, the local bobbies are pretty hot stuff at this sort of game. Ah. Quick note. For those of you who aren't familiar with Quelling's Mumley, it's the little town that's just south of Aldergate. Nice, quiet old spot, very picturesque. Thatched cottages and cricket on the green, all that sort of thing. However, it has gotten some rather unfortunate press over the years. And while you may not know it by its name, you've probably heard of the so-called English Murder Village. Completely overblown, of course, but there was a series of pretty awful... Well, back in 1900-something, there was a string of murders that rather caught the public fancy, made the London gossip papers and so forth, the so-called White Hands Murders. It all ended very unsatisfactorily, with the lass who was meant to have done the killings apparently committing suicide, but nobody was ever quite sure, and at this point the facts are so much mixed in with the legend that there's really no separating them. 
Anyhow, that set the stage. And then, in the 1950s, it happened again. Completely different circumstances, of course, but another series of murders, and again it went unsolved. Ugh. Well, once you've got a story like that going, it's just a rolling snowball. And there have been a few other unpleasantnesses. Fortunately, the village has sternly resisted any temptation to trade on its reputation. No souvenir stalls or Quelling's Mumley t-shirts. Just a lot of books written and a BBC docudrama. And, of course, everybody's got theories, not a few of which note the villages being just downstream from Aldergate. I have nothing of my own to add, but the point is that, thanks to Quelling's Mumley, the Aldershire CID does tend to attract rather better class of homicide detective than our sleepy little county might otherwise warrant. So, back to the diary. So far, however, the investigation seems to have been a bit of a bust. <sighs> Try not to let cops and killers eat up too much of your attention, eh? You do have one or two actual responsibilities, to say nothing of all the irresponsible things you're dying to tuck into. Anyhow, this diary hasn't even made it to dinner time yet, and wouldn't it be lovely to finish up before dawn for a change? You'll have plenty of time for mystery stories over the next few days. Baz thinks it may take her a little while to straighten out whatever's got twisted with your Midwinter Hill clearance. Uh, honestly. The RAF thought you were all right when Quip was doing the implementation for Site 5. If they don't mind you traipsing around High Wickham, you can't see why they're so keen to keep you out of your own bloody lab. Ah, well. Baz will get it done. Nobody pushes a sweeter paper than she. Good old Baz amounts to a whole hill of bean counters. Even now, she's probably swinging about between chains of command, like a bureaucratic chimpanzee. She'll track down whatever or whomever is holding you up. All will be resolved. Huh. Unless it really is the bastards being difficult, of course. Yes, that would be quite another matter. Better check sibling. Ah, look who's spiked on Voxen. That was quick. Yes. Uh, quick, but inevitable. Nothing you can do about it now, anyhow. Not for the better, at least. The Vox Inordita will do as it do-do, and you'll either live with the consequences, or die with them. Ah, speaking of which, best shake hands with Mr. Deadman. There. Ah, onwards. Yes, uh, talk to Standish. Oh, yes, and he promised to get you a list of Sammy's known associates. You're particularly curious on that point. 
You also wanted to ask, when is it all going to become real? How long will it take for your head to finish incubating this thing, so that it can hatch from an intellectual puzzle into something human and properly painful? There's something to look forward to. Yes. Standish offered you a lift back to the manse, but you declined. You had pondering to do. The sun had sunk behind the slated rooftops, but the twin Cleopatra's needles of Triple E burned red and gold in the sunset. You gawped up at them, a gormless island in the intermittent interlacing streams of scholars heading north-south and east-west through Last Quad. What can they have thought of you, eh? Altercations don't stand still. We are a bevy of red queens. There's brownian motion in our blood. Who's got time to stop and watch? Alistair. Alistair did. Alistair could spend whole days at a time perched up in the scholar's tree, watching and thinking. But that was different. He didn't just watch the world pass, he went with it, every bit of it, every moving part. You tried to do that too, this evening. You stood in last quad and tried to feel for the clockwork. No good. <sighs> Simply hadn't got it in you. Too tired, brain not up for the strain. You stood and watched and thought. Then you woke up with a jump, as is your new habit. You thought for a moment that you'd lost yourself again, misplaced an hour or two. Then spoke the bells. Every clock in Aldergate, and over them all the warden Carolyn tolling the knell of parting day. First the quarters and then four deep musical strokes. The last flames climbed triple E, dwindling to crimson sparks. Then it was night. You found yourself in a pool of shadows with banks of colored light. The ground floor residences that ring last quad have lovely stained glass windows alternating the Aldergate crest with that of the college. Your eye was drawn to a black censor bar in one window that had redacted the CIP out of the Gambrel motto, Non Scolae, Non Vitae, said Disciplinae. Funny. You didn't really think about it, you just realized in a moment that that must be old Kilbury's bedroom. That shadowy oblong must be phenomenology of mind, protecting Prof. K from the night air. To think of the awful thing that had happened just outside the old boy's window. And yet, somehow, you couldn't dwell on horrors. The moon had come out of ahead, not quite full, but bulging in that direction. 
From one high window came the pleasant whining of a violin. A breeze carried a snatch of laughter from one of the pubs down Witch Street. The lights inside the triple E towers melted into twin streaks of soft white, straining up into the night sky. Within, the busy motion of tiny silhouettes served as a reminder that the quest for new discovery knows neither clock nor calendar. Part of you could have stood there forever, basking in the Janus light of centuries past and centuries to come. Not the feet parts, however. Those were starting to freeze. Aldergate cold doesn't bite like a New York winter, but there's an insidiousness to it that creeps right up inside you. You left last quad by the western arch, headed for hearth and home. The fog had rolled up off the fay, and the floodlights that ring Gambrel's outer wall projected a glowing golden cloud through which you walked slowly with outstretched arms. Once on the other side, you turned back to look, like the sound of a great... Uh, right, stop that. Save the amateur poetics. Get on with it. Oh, fine. Suffice it to say that it's all very pretty. Whatever ugliness may lurk within, tonight Aldergate is looking simply lovely. It was in a heady mood that you went on your way, tripping merrily down to the new bridge. And whom should you find when you got there but your faithful retainer from yesterday morning? Good old Sir Beardface. Judging by the bulging pack on his back and the padded claymore in his hand, another epic chapter in the interspecies struggle must have just concluded. He stood to attention when he saw you and ripped off a crisp, closed-fisted salute. You returned it and asked him how the war was getting on. He seemed generally hopeful about humanity's chances. If faith, sire, this has been a day of triumphs. He's got a marvelous voice, has Beardy Bloke. You couldn't tell when he was whispering, but when he speaks aloud, there's a tremendous resonance to it, like he carries his own echoes about with him. The day is won. The turnbrain traitors languish in your majesty's dungeon, and I have e'en now dispatched another of the unformed devils. He dropped to one knee with a clank. Now would I crave thy royal blessing, ere I go hence to court my lady love. Well, you couldn't very well refuse the chap, not after he'd put in a solid day of fealty like that. Right-ho, you said. Rather, consider it bestowed, and give my best to the lucky damsel. My liege... He abased himself yet further. You proceeded with regal aplomb into the mouth of the new bridge, where you slipped and fell in a puddle of something absolutely awful. <sighs> the Chesterfield protected the Makoto Waku, but you'd almost rather it had been the other way around. You shan't be wearing summer weight again for six months, but the Chesterfield's the only warm coat you brought with you. 
You'll have to ask Baz, who does her dry cleaning. And since you've already got to petition the regents for a spot of modernization, you may as well include proper lighting in the new bridge on your list of demands. You will be unpopular with those who appreciate public privacy. Particularly in warm weather, the new bridge is, as they say, more sinned against than sinning. This evening, however, as you lay broken and sticky on the flagstones, you came dash near being bisected by a bicycle. It won't do. Oh, and you're now supremely skeptical of those masked persons. They appear to be gearing up for their big performance when you got back to the manse, and whatever it is, it looks dangerous. Great rows of hanging meat hooks. But if they're fakes, they're terribly good ones. <sighs> Nothing you can do about it, of course. The pent is Liberty Hall. Anyhow, it's art. If you make a fuss, the critics will jawbone you in a heartbeat. Still, you may not be of the theaterati, but there did seem to be a lot of unnecessarily risky stage business going on. They may have to cancel the show regardless. It was just starting to spit as you were getting in, and the windows have got a steady raindrop drumroll going. Got to be pretty miserable out there. The show must go on and all that, but who's going to volunteer to watch it? Hopefully they'll just pack it in. You nearly lost your top cop to the perils of the boards today. A lot of masked fretten strutters gaffing themselves on your doorstep is not what you need right now. What you need right now is bed. No, what you need right now is that last falafel. Do you? Yes, yes you do. The rest of this page belongs to a spicy pink blot. We resume with a revelation. Hello, hello. Well now, here's a pretty game. Curious, curiouser, and curiousest. We have a second mystery letter. <sighs> Who the twist is trying to communicate with you? And why are they making such a bad job of it? They could run you right out of paper towels at this rate, and leave you no clearer on their intentions than when they started. Uh, be that as it may, mysterious letter number two. You're lucky to have found it at all. Baz must have plonked the basket right on top of it, and it clung to the wicker bottom like crafty old Ulysses for the trip up to the library. Well, nothing wrong with a little light reading, and you were in need of a napkin. As for the message itself, it's in that same oddly awkward hand as before. It runs, <clears throat> Find me after you finish up. Unsure how to proceed. Can't explain more until you get here. Keller up to something. Dramatical, what? 
but it leaves the audience unsatisfied, wanting more. Whither are you summoned? What ought you to do when you get there? Who or what is a keller when it's at home? And what's any of it got to do with you? Bah! The mysteries around this place, they multiply like rabbits. And, like rabbits, they all seem intent on burrowing. Right into your poor little head. You don't know where to start, or how to start. And worst of all, you've no business trying to untangle anything at all right now. It's past midnight, and you haven't had proper horizontal sleep in a century. Yes, it'll wait. They'll all wait. Bastards and murderers and two-ply Cassandras will all have to amuse themselves till morning. You are going to bed. Well then, so ends the third day of the return to Aldergate. The university has sprung a few surprises on our hero, and may have more in store, but that's only to be expected. All in all, Vice-Chancellor Ward seems to be finding his feet. He's found his bedroom, at least. Perhaps the poor fellow can get a decent night's sleep at last. <laughs> well, we shall just have to see, shan't we? Join me every second Sunday at thealdergatepapers.com. Find the Aldergate Papers on iTunes as well, and spread the word, won't you? This may be my story, but I fear that it's likely to become everybody's problem. Until next time, I am and shall remain your humble servant, Adrian Ward. Thank you for listening to Tuesday Terror right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual feeds, including Monday Matinee for classic live and theatrical audio plays, Wednesday Wonders, our science fiction and fantasy magazine, Thursday Thrillers for action, adventure, mystery, and crime drama, Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series, the Saturday Story Circle for kids and family alike, and Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.